this text is really, really short, but there's a lot in it, and it addresses a perplexing question. What does it mean to be truly religious? This is a question that has plagued Christians for a really long time, and different answers have been offered. In fact, I would suggest that many of the divisions within Christianity are a result of answering this question in different ways. Sometimes this question is answered in more humorous ways than others. The serious question is taken up in the comedy Nacho Libre. It's loosely based on the actual life of a Catholic priest, and it's seeking to wrestle with some of the questions about what real religion is that this priest took up in his own life. In real life, this priest supported an orphanage based on his professional wrestling career, and it's only loosely articulated in the film. Okay, the film is not really following everything, but it does raise that important question of what it means to be truly religious, particularly if your official religion prohibits you from pursuing the values of Jesus who gave you the religious life to begin with. What do we do when it seems like our religious practice is in conflict with the values that Jesus assigns to us? So in this film, Ignacio is wrestling with the problem of whether, he's not, or, whether or not he's religious when he wants to pursue the wrestling life. What does he do when his religion demands asceticism and celibacy when he's trying to find romantic love and trying to show love to a bunch of orphans? So he sing, sings this refrain, this refrain, this phrase, I am, I think I am, I think I am, I'm glad I am, I'm proud I am, a real religious man. And the conception of what it means to be religious changes throughout the film. Well, this question that the movie takes up is one that James takes up much more seriously and much more pointedly in the text that we have before us. What does it mean to be truly religious? When we hear that term religion or religious, I think that probably we hear it negatively. We think of religion as something that's meaningless, empty, legalistic, self-righteous, so when I, in college, came across a book called Jesus Without Religion, I thought I finally found the answer. Get rid of religion and just have Jesus. Well, the way that James is going to use the term religion and religious here is not that way. He's talking about genuine Christianity, genuine spirituality. If you hear that term religion and it kind of raises your hackles or you don't like the term, I would just encourage you to notice what James puts it in parallel with. He puts it in parallel with the phrase, be a doer of the word and not hearers only. So when James talks about being religious, it's just another way of saying, be someone who does the word. Don't just hear it, actually do it. True religion is doing the word. So I'm going to maintain James's language of being truly religious even though it doesn't quite fit the way we use that term in our society. We use it pejoratively. If someone's religious, they're, they're a legalist, or they're not truly spiritual. Well, we want to use it in the way James does, and we want to observe three marks of real religion, or to use the parallel phrase, three marks of someone who actually does the word 
and doesn't just hear the word. The first mark is controlled speech. In verse 26, James says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Or we could plug in that synonymous phrase, If anyone thinks he is a doer of the word without controlling his tongue, his hearing of the word is useless and he deceives himself. That's all that James is saying. And if you look up to verses 19 and 20, you start to see that James is just pretty much repeating himself. There he said that we all need to understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. That is, we need to control our tongues and slow to anger as we receive the implanted word. He's just saying the same thing, just in a different way. So if you miss that sermon, you can go back and find it on the website. Um, But he's also just forecasting the fact that he's going to take up this issue of controlling our tongues later in the text as well. So in chapter 3, he's going to take up the issue of the way that teachers use their tongues and then the way that every Christian uses their tongues as they speak to one another. So when we look at the book of James as a whole, there are really three categories of using the tongue that he addresses. First, in chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about the way that we use our tongues to accuse God. So when we're going through a time of trial and things are difficult, James warns us against saying, I am being tempted by God. No one should say this. We shouldn't use our tongues to accuse God when we commit sins. We shouldn't blame him for the hardships in our life. And then in chapter 3, he talks about controlling our tongue with respect to representing God as we speak to one another and seeing others as those who bear God's image. So when we treat other people with our words, we ought to treat them as those who represent God, who bear God's likeness. We should not bless them in some instances and curse them in others. Our speech should not wound people. It should bring life and healing. And then finally, as we move into the the realm of wisdom in the outworking of our speech there. We ought to speak wisely and truly. But the problem is, as James points out in 3.8, that none of us can control our tongues. No one can tame the tongue. So if true religion involves controlling the tongue and no one can do it, how can anyone actually be religious? I think this is the question that James is trying to lead us towards. Ultimately, the answer comes in the fact that controlling our tongues is not the fundamental issue. James is just picking up on the language of Jesus, where Jesus teaches that it's out of our hearts that our mouths speak. So when James talks about true religion as that which can control the tongue, he's not suggesting that we just close our mouths and never speak to anybody so we can avoid saying something negative. Instead, he's suggesting that each of us need to have transformed hearts so that when we use our words, out of our transformed hearts will come words that give life and healing and that testify to the radical work of the gospel in our lives. So God does really care about our speech, but we can mislead ourselves into thinking that we are truly religious by avoiding certain words, 
not realizing that words change in meaning over time. We think that we can prove our true religiosity by only speaking when necessary and exercising a kind of self-control that means we never speak to anyone. When in reality, God is not so much concerned about that, but he's concerned about what we do with our speech as an outworking of what he's doing in our hearts. James is trying to tell us that the greatest metric for measuring the transforming power of the gospel in your heart is to evaluate the way you use your speech with respect to God and to one another. So the problem isn't how often we open our mouths, so the solution won't be found in trying to white-knuckle control our speech. Instead, the solution to our speech is found in the transforming work of God in our hearts through Jesus Christ. So true religion is one that does have external manifestations, but those external manifestations can only come first through the transforming power of the gospel. So when James tells us, no one can tame the tongue, we might hear, well, then no one can really be religious. And in one sense, that is true. Once again, the answer doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from us. It comes from us giving ourselves over to the way of Christ. It comes from God's spirit working in us to change us. And as James is trying to show us in the whole of the book, Often that transforming work comes through time of testing and trial. This instruction to control our speech is not disconnected from the means that God uses to transform us. James wants us to navigate the hardships of this life with the ethic of Jesus, adopting his way and his values, so that as we encounter difficulty and as we relate to one another, what comes out is the change that Jesus has worked in us by his grace through the trials that we navigate. Ultimately, this is an act of grace. We participate in it, but we can't conjure this up. That shouldn't be disappointing or frustrating or or disheartening for us, should actually give us great hope because we've already learned from James that God is a God who delights in giving. He delights in giving grace. He delights in changing us, in transforming us. He delights in making his children look more like him. So our answer is to keep returning to Jesus. So I'd welcome you, if you have never turned to Jesus for the first time, and you're just trying to be a religious person, you're just trying to be a better person, it's not going to work without coming first to Jesus. For those of us who would say, I've been a religious person, I think rightly, by turning to Jesus my whole life, or from a young age, by repenting and confessing sin, I identify as a Christian, I want to suggest to you that there's no religious pattern of life that's good enough to call yourself a Christian. It's only by your connection to Jesus now and for all of life that will make you a truly religious person, someone who truly can do the word. We have to keep returning to Jesus. This warns us again against a failure that I've talked about often in this series of assuming that because we once prayed a prayer that we're living the truly Christian life. The Christian life is not a matter 
of a one-time commitment to Jesus, but an all-of-life outworking of the change that he works in our hearts. This is a really simple point. I'm, I've tried to say in five different ways the same exact thing. We need Jesus, and we can't be truly religious without him. We need our external life to be transformed by the inner working of Christ. So let's continue to encourage one another as we do our church life together to keep coming back to Jesus over and over and over again and to allow that work of Christ to make itself known in our lives. So what I'm trying to say here is don't get distracted into thinking that if I can just not say anything ever except for when I know I'll say the right thing, that then I'll be truly a Christian, then I'll be truly religious. That's not the way we live. We live recognizing that, more importantly, God cares about transforming our hearts. So mark number one of real religion is that it involves controlled speech, or it results in controlled speech because of the fundamental transforming work of the gospel in our hearts. Then number two, real religion will result in care for the vulnerable. Care for the vulnerable. Verse 27, James says that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now he phrases it in somewhat of an interesting way. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. I think that's quite an important line for us to grab onto because there are many ways that we can think of being religious before other people or being religious in our own minds. But James wants to show us that it's only religion before God the Father that matters. It doesn't matter how we perceive ourselves or how others perceive our way of life. What matters is the way that God perceives our way of life. So when we ask whether or not we're living a truly religious life, We don't need to get caught up in comparing ourselves with the religious life of others. We don't need to get caught up in trying to prove something. We only need to ask ourselves, what does God think about the way I'm living? What what does God think in this situation? See, as we go about trying to construct a religious way of life, it's easy for us to grab onto certain commands in the scriptures and to ignore the rest. In fact, that's what many of Jesus' conversation partners in the Gospels did, didn't they? They thought they were living a truly religious life, but it's almost as if they failed to stop and ask, what would God say about the way I'm living? That's what James wants us to do here, to evaluate our religious life as it is seen and perceived by God the Father. And fundamental to the religious life as seen and prescripted by God the Father, is that we care for other people, that we care for the vulnerable. Here, James identifies in particular the orphans and the widows in their distress. Certainly, James is thinking of actual orphans and widows that need to be cared for by Christians and the church, but I think it would be a mistake to say that the only vulnerable people that we ought to care for are the orphans and the widows. As if when we construct ministries, we should only construct them for orphans and widows and everyone else can figure things out on their own. That's misunderstanding what James is doing. He's in a very pointed way talking about a part, a section of a category to represent the whole of the category of the helpless, 
the vulnerable, the needy, the marginalized. So one commentator suggests as we fill in this category that we should think about all vulnerable people, whether they are orphans and widows, whether they are immigrants trying to adjust to a new life, impoverished majority world individuals, the disabled or the homeless, or any other number of people who find themselves in need, these are the people that James is instructing we should care about. Now, when we phrase something, care for the vulnerable, often we start to think only in terms of our emotional disposition towards them. We care about them. We feel badly that they are in this situation. But the kind of caring that James is interested in is the kind that can be expressed as the Christian Standard Bible that we're using does, to look after them, to be concerned about them, and to act on that concern. It's a movement beyond recognizing their distress to meeting them in it. Some translations will render this to visit the orphans and widows in their distress. The calling of Christians in true religion is to enter into the distress and helplessness and vulnerability of others and to provide and care for them. Why would James make caring for the vulnerable, for the widows and the orphans, a test or a mark of true religion? Well, ultimately, it's because God relates to all people as a father, a father who seeks to meet their needs. And when there are fatherless individuals and husbandless individuals, these are those who most clearly picture God's fatherly desire to love and provide. And we take up God's desire to care for these in our action as his children. Our natural disposition is to only care for ourselves and to connect to those who look like us and who don't need our help. I think there's a way that we can naturally virtue signal our wanting to help other people, but we don't actually do it quite the way that we ought to. So I want to just give a listing of texts that describe God's love for the vulnerable to help us see that this is a consistent message of the scriptures. In Exodus 22, the Israelites are instructed, you must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. That's a stark presentation. Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Isaiah 1, 16 to 17. You could almost accuse James as you read his letter of plagiarizing Isaiah. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Zechariah 7, 9, and 10. 
the Lord of Armies says this, make fair decisions. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. This is the Old Testament witness to God's care and concern for the vulnerable, and it didn't go away with Jesus. In fact, we might say that it's seen more clearly in Jesus. We won't look at the whole account, but when Jesus is giving this depiction of the final day, he speaks to those who ever did an act of kindness to those in prison, to the sick and the vulnerable, and he tells the righteous that you did all of these things for me, and when they ask him, when, when did we do this? This is what his answer was. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The way we relate to the vulnerable in our world indicates a relationship to Christ through that. Didn't stop with Jesus. It was carried on to the apostles. When the apostle Paul met with James, the author of the letter that we're considering, this is what the apostle, what Paul was instructed by James and, and the other apostles. They asked only what, that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. So you might think that Paul only cared about particular points of doctrine. He made every effort to remember the poor. And he concludes in chapter 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. God cares about the needy. He cares about the poor. And here, James wants us to see that being truly religious means reflecting that same care. True religion is reflecting the fatherly character of God that wants to offer good gifts to his children and to meet the needs of the vulnerable. So I think we have to ask ourselves, do we look at others this way? I have to confess that particularly when I was in high school wanting to become a politician and some of the holdover of what I thought was good political strategy resulted in me looking at the poor and immigrants and others through a party line rather than through the biblical expression of God's love and concern for foreigners and the poor. And I wonder if that's the way that many of us just are naturally inclined to operate. Where instead of considering what our true political leader, King Jesus, thinks, we start to operate within just the small confines of the political world that we find ourselves in. I don't think that any of us do this intentionally or with a heart of rebellion against God, but I think it's just the air that we breathe as we each seek to live our American life in whatever way seems like is best. But that's not God's instructions for his people in this world, in this country or any other country. This isn't a uniquely American problem. This is just a problem whenever Christians find themselves in a place of comfort. So I'd ask you, when you think of the foreigner, the poor, the homeless, the husbandless, and the fatherless, are you moved towards them in a disposition of warmth and affection seeking to meet their needs? Or do you just move on without thinking about them? Or perhaps thinking negatively about them? We should not do this because that is not true religion. 
That's not doing the word. So what do we want to do about that as a church? How do we filter this? How do we filter our responsibility when we think about the other callings that we have as a church? Well, in our membership seminar that we give to those who are considering membership here, one of the sessions is on the church. What is the church? What are our purposes? And we've identified four purposes of the church, and they can be stated in any number of ways. We don't have anyone who loves marketing enough to help us put put this in a better, unique way to make us seem special, but pretty much every church agrees to some of these purposes. The first is that we exist to exalt God. We sing to him, we worship him, we make him known. We also exist to edify and equip the saints, to encourage one another, to equip one another for ministry, to, to grow one another in the faith, and to evangelize the lost. We want to share the message of Jesus with other people. Any, any textbook or systematic theology that talks about the purposes of the church will include at least these three things, regardless of how it's expressed. But as we continue to work on our identity as a church and as our calling, we came across texts like this in James and other texts like the ones I read in the Old Testament in, in Galatians, And we started to realize that we had a little bit of a weakness to where we were only really concerned about looking up and looking around us, and we weren't really looking outside of us other than just to speak the message of the gospel calling people to faith and repentance. So as we worked on developing our understanding of our responsibility as a church, we added a fourth purpose, which is to embody the gospel. That is to identify what it looks like to be transformed on the inside and to treat other people as Jesus treated them, to look at people as those in need of the fatherly love of God, regardless of whether or not they received the message of the gospel as we sought to evangelize them. So we've tried to do this in different ways as a church. We've tried to do this through um, some level of partnership with Amnion Crisis, crisis Pregnancy Center. We try to do this through our Summerfest outreach. We try to do this through packing backpacks for needy children in our area. There are various ways that we have tried to do this. But I think we need to keep leaning into this because this is perhaps the least ingrained purpose of the church for many of us. We do need to exalt God. We do need to be concerned about our life together. We do need to be concerned about speaking the truth of the gospel and calling people to faith and repentance. But we also need to be concerned about meeting the needs of the vulnerable. We can't do everything, and not everyone in here can do everything. This is what makes this purpose of the church perhaps a little bit more challenging to put into practice than the others, Because it would be wrong for us to say that embodying the gospel or caring for the vulnerable will look like only one particular way of doing it. Uh, We can't champion everything, and we don't want to limit the ways of doing this to just one thing. But we all ought to be doing something. We all ought to have this concern, and we ought to be thinking about the ways that we as a church can, can care for the vulnerable. Fundamentally, though, What I want us to avoid is the wrong idea that the church cares for people's souls and we just try to get them to heaven and the government 
can care about their bodies in the rest of their life before they get to heaven. That's what we want to avoid. What we want to say is we, we want to care for the whole of a person. We want to care for their soul. We want to care for their body. Ultimately, we want to work out the ethic of Jesus and the concern of God for the poor and the vulnerable. Meeting needs of the vulnerable is not peripheral. It's not an optional calling on the church, but as James points out here, it's central to our faith. It's not an option. So I would encourage you that sometimes your embodiment of the gospel, your concern for the poor and the vulnerable, can take shape as you just tie into what we're doing as a church. You don't have to be creative, you just have to show up. And and you can participate in what we're doing. But I think more fundamentally, we show our care for the vulnerable, not when we're gathered here, but when we scatter out on our own. When we relate to our neighbors, when we see people in our community, when we pass that homeless person on, on the highway. I don't want to try to dictate to you what it will look like for you to show care for the vulnerable. But I do want to encourage you to have an inclination toward showing love to those even who you might think don't deserve it. Because that's all of us. We can only show love and concern for the vulnerable because we were, we were vulnerable. We were unlovable, and God loved us. So mark number two is that we show care for the vulnerable. Mark number three, cleanness from the world. The third mark of true religion is cleanness from the world. So James gives the injunction that Christians are to keep themselves unspotted from the world, or in our translation, unstained from the world. Once again, he's really just repeating what he's already said in verse 21 when he instructed Christians to rid themselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. That's what James is getting at is we need to navigate our life in this world without being infiltrated by moral filth and evil that's all around us. Here, James connects it to the terminology of the world. James is not referring to our physical planet or things in the planet or other people, but he is instead referring to the world's value system. It's important for us to grasp onto what James is and is not saying, because at times, I think in a right desire not to be worldly, we start to define worldliness just by whatever we want to think of worldliness as. So we identify whatever cultural battle is raging at the time, and we mark out a position, and then whatever the opposite of our position is, that's worldliness. Well, sometimes that's right, but often that misses the mark, and we get distracted with being culture warriors instead of attending to the underlying distinct values of the kingdom of God that are in opposition to the underlying values of the world. James makes this clear for us when in chapter 4, verse 4, he talks about the fact that if we have friendship with the world, we're at enmity with God. He wants us to see that when he talks about worldliness, he's talking about values that will work themselves out, but that we ought not be distracted by just putting out fires without actually getting to the heart of the problem. Throughout James, 
He pits God's values against the world's values, emphasizing distinctions like the difference between love of money and freely caring for the poor, the difference between being prideful and being humble, the difference between using destructive speech that tears other people down and using other speech, loving speech that is concerned for the other. When James talks about God's values and the world's values, you can almost connect it perfectly to his distinction between worldly wisdom and wisdom from above. That's what he's talking about. And you'll notice that in almost every situation, he's going to talk about what we value. He's not going to get into the particular action that follows it. We need to be concerned with the particular action. But if we don't start with identifying the conflict of values in our right attempt to change action to align with who God is, we might not get to the right point. We might instead end up baptizing the values of the world system, and never get around to kingdom living. This work of identifying what values are actually at play is difficult, and it is so wide-ranging that I understand why James here is simply saying, be unstained by the world, because it would be impossible to identify every single issue along the way. But this call is for us to think carefully and to use our eyes of faith and our knowledge from Scripture to identify these competing value systems. I want to just give one example of the way that this works itself out, um, and then you can maybe transpose this into other settings in life as we try to identify the difference between just attacking the results of a value system and not actually getting to the values. When you look at church history, you can identify, especially in the conservative world, different debates that have waged. And eventually you get far enough along down the way that you get a bigger picture and you can see why people keep butting heads and no one can, can get to a, you know, amenable solution. One of those issues is the, issues of, the issue of gender roles. So over the last 70 years, maybe, there's been a debate between egalitarians and complementarians. And um, egalitarian, egalitarians, in the maybe the most unbiblical of ways, would look at our world and say, the feminist movement is happening. Women need to take power. They need to take control. Uh, so then there was a way of trying to filter that into the Christian church. And then in response, uh, complementarian or patriarchal side would say, no, uh, the Bible speaks to the way that men and women ought to relate, and women shouldn't be trying to grasp this power, and so men should have power. And then there was a debate, and still is a debate, about who should have power in relationships or in the church or otherwise. And I think this is a really good example of the way that Christians rightly detect that the world's value system is making a display somewhere but instead of getting to the value system level of combat, it's just let's do the opposite thing and, and maintain what we once had. Because there is an issue with the way that men and women relate, but fundamentally there's an issue with the valuing and understanding of how power works in the world. And unless that issue is dealt with, everything downstream from that is just going to be in gridlock. Unless we start to adopt the the kingdom value system, 
that says power is not in existence to exercise it over one another for your own good, but to give up your power for the good of another, or to use whatever power God has entrusted you with for the flourishing of others at the cost of self-sacrifice, unless we start to look at power according to God's value system, then we're only ever going to have worldly ways of working out power, even if it's baptized with the language of a few Bible verses to say we're doing God's thing here. I'm not trying to say this is what James is talking about in total. This is an illustration of what he's talking about. He's trying to get past all of the presenting issues to say fundamentally, true religion is going to identify the world's value system at the root level and replace it with God's value system. It's not going to be in this debate on these external issues that are downstream from it, as important as those issues might be, it's going to live according to the kingdom value system of Christ and then worry about the outworkings from there. This is true there. It's true in so many other issues. And what I want to call us to do is to begin evaluating what we identify as godliness and worldliness, not only by some of these external metrics, but according to the value system of Christ that we pick up on here in James and in the rest of the the Bible. James is going to do this really well for us next week when we get into chapter two. That's what he's setting us up for when he talks about the way that perhaps Christians have adopted the worldly value system as it relates to wealth instead of God's kingdom value system. So James will help us out along the way. He'll show us how to do this. But ultimately, if we want to have true religion, if we want to be doers of the word, we have to work hard to detect which value system is motivating our action. And we have to avoid deceiving ourselves into thinking that just because we've adopted a quote-unquote Christian or biblical way of operating— that we've actually gotten down to the issue of the value systems at play. This is hard work. It's impossible to do that from a pulpit every Sunday to identify every issue along the way, which is why this is ultimately a matter of personal discipleship that has to take place in our relationships with one another. We can talk about some big issues from a pulpit, and we can talk about these principles, but ultimately, working together We have to do this as we disciple one another into living according to the kingdom value system of Christ. This is hard work. This is impossible work for us to do on our own. We need others in this church. We need other Christian churches who might be better at some of these things than others who can show us where we're falling short. We need Christians from other cultures who aren't living with the same value systems that we have in their culture that they might be prone to replace with kingdom value systems because they can more clearly see the way that we do it just as we can see the way that they do it because we're at a distance. Ultimately, we need God's Spirit to give us eyes of faith so that we might see clearly and soft and courageous heart so that we can respond appropriately as we seek to adopt God's kingdom values and to root out the values of this world so that we'll remain unspotted by the world. This is a challenging task, but it's also really a hope-giving task because it shows us that we can just live like Jesus lived, 
We don't have to write our own script. We can just adopt what Jesus taught us. That's what being a Christian is. And as we adopt that, we're able to bring all of the purposes of the church together in harmony. We're able to glorify God as people see our good deeds as we embody the gospel, as we encourage one another to find flourishing in the kingdom values of Christ, and as we display and declare what Jesus is doing as he establishes his kingdom on this earth that can be received through faith and repentance. When any one of those is lost, the rest are weakened. This is a calling that we're taking up as a church plant. This is something we're trying to figure out as we establish ourselves in the days ahead, as we seek to develop a culture of true religion, of doing the word that's marked by controlled speech as a result of transformed hearts, care for the vulnerable, and cleanness from the world. Let's ask God to help us in this, because we won't get it done any other way. Father, we... Thank you for these simple words from James. We confess that we struggle to participate in pure and undefiled religion before you. We don't want to resist what you call us to, but often we just don't see where we're failing. So we ask that you would give us eyes of faith, that you would give us grace, and give us confidence that you, as our loving Father, want to see us transform into the the beauty of Christ, that we don't have to be overly worried, but that we can run to Christ and rest in his grace as we carry out our callings as Christians. In Christ we pray.